Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, which has two bits to it. This weekend marks the 96th, yes, 96th birthday of Uncle Ray Cadero. He's just a phenomenon, that man. He's also the world's most durable DJ, according to the Guinness World Records. He's been in broadcasting since 1949, so he's certainly Radio Hong Kong and then Radio Television Hong Kong's longest-serving employee. You can still hear him weekday nights from 10pm till 1am, and he's met many, many music legends in his time. The first half of this week's programme is an interview I did with Uncle Ray to mark his 90th birthday and to hear about his love of music. Later in the programme, I'll be playing one of my favourite all-time interviews on Hong Kong Heritage over the past 22 years, and that's Patricia Lim, an erudite historian who wrote a wonderful book about the people who lie in Hong Kong Cemetery in 2011, and that was published by Hong Kong University Press. I hope they republish. It's called Forgotten Souls, a social history of the Hong Kong Cemetery, and you can hear about that later in the programme. So, Uncle Ray was born in 1924. That's when Calvin Coolidge was president in the United States. There was prohibition there, not here. In Hong Kong, according to Wikipedia, it was a sanitary board election, but I'd like to think something else happened that year. Oh yes, Uncle Ray was born, and Sir Reginald Edward Stubbs was governor. In 1949, when Uncle Ray started in Radio Hong Kong, Mao Zedong proclaimed the Communist People's Republic of China, and the first Volkswagen Beetle was sold in the United States. Well, it's a, it's a variety of, uh, if we talk about shows or music, a variety of music because it ranges uh, six decades of music, you know, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on until today. Uh, well, I'm not too much uh, in it for uh, with today's music, but uh, I would say it sort of uh, wind down at around uh, 90s, early 90s. Now you start, yes, as you say, you start off uh, with the 1930s. So um, who would you say that you like from from that decade? Well, it's mostly big bands. I'm familiar with the American big bands and also as well the British big big bands. So uh, I'm used to all those names like from from uh, from UK, you have Geraldo, Ted Heath, Joe Loss and all that. And from the States, you have, of course, Artie Shaw, Glenn Miller, uh, Duke Ellington, etc., etc. child you decided uh, to play the drums at what age were you well uh i i wouldn't say i was a child because <laughs> i started to love the drums uh during during the second world war uh when i was a, a refugee in macau and um there was this uh, once a year function uh, like christmas uh, you know or no, no, actually it is christmas uh, and combined with new years as well the 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 refugees have some sort of money in the kitty and they engage a big band and i was i was delirious i was so happy i was sitting 
behind the screen, just behind the drama, you know, just behind the drama, uh, watching him every move and all that. For the simple reason that I love Gene Krupa, who played with, with Benny Goodman, and of course Buddy Rich with uh, Harry James and Ali Shaw. So I, I, I was fascinated by the drama. As I grew older, there was another reason for for being a drummer. Because I noticed that in all the bands, no matter how big or small, the the focus is always on the drummer. He's always in the center of the stage. And I I was I was just uh, fascinated. I wanted to be the star of the show every time. <laughs> Where were you born? I, I was born in uh, Hong Kong, uh, in Wan Chai Road which I remember exactly the number 100 and is uh, in one of the flats there in 100 in Wan Chai Road. The, the flat is not even there now. It's been pulled down and they have a new building. And uh, I was familiar with the theatres like Cathay Theatre and Oriental Theatre, both gone, you know. Uh, so that that was my home. Did you uh, Were you the only son or did you come from a big family? A family of six. Uh, I have an older brother who I adore and admire because my influence in music came through him, you know, and four sisters. I have one, one sister uh, younger than me and the rest are, are older. And uh, my brother uh, uh, convinced me or influenced me with his kind of music. And he was, uh, in those days, it was 78 RPM, you know, there's one song, one one record, one song. And he was he was playing those kind of music with Bing Crosby and uh, Perry Como and all that, and that's where I learned how to appreciate that kind of music. Papa loves mambo. Mama loves mambo. Look at him sway with it, getting so gay with it, shout no lay with it, wow. My father was a, a banker, Hong Kong, Hong Kong Bank, and he's been there for, for donkey's years, it was something like 30, 40 years, you know, and uh, he's uh, an old timer. He believes in just one straight track and no no variation, you know, and he, he worked his way up to the top of the Hong Kong Bank, the book office, he was number one. And uh, that, that's where he, he was, even during the war. Now, the surname Cadero, what's the, what's the background to that? Well, my mum was actually from Macau. And the funny thing was uh, she was born in the barracks uh, in Macau. You know? So her father was some sort of general or some big shot in the army. So, so she was very well treated. As a, but she's very, very, a very homely type of person. Uh, my dad, well, he's more like a freelancer. Plays, he likes soccer and he likes. All, but his main job was a, was a clerk in a bank. But I don't. I couldn't tell where my dad came from uh, because he, he was born in Hong Kong as well, like myself, you know. 
but his origin I, I, I couldn't I, I I I couldn't trace back. But uh he he is I don't think he's a hundred percent Portuguese. <laughs> Uh, after the war, my life changed uh, completely. Uh, coming back from Macau to Hong Kong, uh, jobs were not easily available. You know, all the offices were closed, and the only uh, commercial uh, function is the Hong Kong Bank. Hong Kong Bank was the only bank open in Hong Kong, or maybe Chartered Bank at the other, but only banks and government's, uh, government offices. So, um, I got back and uh, with a bunch of Portuguese boys, all in the twenties, we we sort of marched or ran or, or found our way in Stanley Stanley Prison, and we wanted to a job in Stanley Prison because that's, that's a government job, and that's the only place available. So we all got we all got in as uh, prison warders. <laughs> and I was the prison warden looking after prisoners. Uh, we had a good time because there's a whole bunch of us, all, all schoolmates or, or office mates, you know, all youngs and, and very high-spirited uh, uh, people. Uh, and we, we governed the, the standing prison pretty well. <laughs> Did it worry you about hanging out with criminals? Uh, no, they're actually very, very, uh, they're not, not big time criminals. You know, they're not murderers or anything like that. It's small, small time. They've been there for maybe a couple of months, you know, and maybe a couple of years, but not long term prisoners. So, uh, but the funny thing was that there were, there were also Japanese prisoners, prisoners of war. And of course, we were not, uh, looking after the Japanese prisoners. They, they had commandos to look after the prison, uh, Japanese prisoners, and we look after those, those, uh, those uh, short-term prisons. <laughs> so what were you in your early 20s at this point? Yeah, I was uh, in mid-20s, yes, mid-20s, not knowing what's, what's my future going to be, you know. <laughs> now, what's with the cap that Uncle Ray always wears? Well, it came a time in my life uh, as a radio uh, presenter, I wasn't known as a disc jockey then. I thought, uh, you know, a man or a boy or a teenager must have his identity so that the public will know who he is the minute he looks at you, no matter where you are or what you're doing. So I thought, first of all, I'll grow a beard. <laughs> so, but not long beard, but just, uh, just enough to attract people and uh, put on a cap. And then, of course, uh, my hair was thinning out, you know. <laughs> I thought the cap came in handy. So that became my, my image. In terms of, I mean, this isn't the only studio that you've worked at, obviously, but you're here tonight. Uh, what would you say, uh, and if you're listening for your own pleasure, uh, give me your top five. Top five? Oh, my goodness. You, 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 just like asking me to, to number the, number my Mark six. <laughs> Well, uh, the thing is, you know, I, 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 first of all, I had to pick the, the performer, the singer, 
and then I got to pick the song, you know. Like I said uh, on what, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned on my show, I say if I was stranded in a desert island and was asked to only bring one song with me, what would it be? And I said, well, I thought, oh, I said, definitely it's got to be The Very Thought of You by Tony Bennett. For a simple reason that Tony Bennett sang so well in that, in that song, it's a Ray Noble composition, by the way. And the Bobby Hackett was on the cornet. And Bobby is such a perfect professional trumpet player. He will play his part, not interfering with Tony's voice. And it's so well blend together that, that it's a beautiful, beautiful arrangement, beautiful song. And that would be the song I'll take with me to my, to my island, desert island. <laughs> the very of you And I forget to do The little ordinary things That everyone ought to do I'm living in a kind of daydream I'm happy as a king And foolish though it may seem It's interesting that these days, um, you know, we've moved very much into digital music. You were saying about when your brother first introduced you to music, really, it was with 78s, uh, one song per record. Um, now we're living in a very digital age. But what's interesting is that a lot of people are now moving back to vinyl. What do you think is the attraction of these old style records? Well, my biggest collection in my lifetime are the vinyl records. I have something like over 20,000 uh, vinyl records. And uh, the the best uh, sound you can get it must be from the vinyl uh, records because uh, if you have a pair of good speakers and a good amplifier, all the music just come come out brilliantly on on this on this uh, outfit, and uh, it sounds terrific. And that that that's the way I like my music. Uh, when I'm home relaxing, I'll put on my my vinyl rec my vinyl records and uh, maybe f my favorite ones, and I will play them while I re relax and think of uh, hey, what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> my Love. Happy birthday, Uncle Ray, who marks his 96th birthday this weekend. 
For more than a decade, Hong Kong historian Patricia Lim methodically researched the 8,800 graves at Hong Kong Cemetery in Happy Valley, a Christian and largely British colonial cemetery. Many of those lying there seem to have had violent or disease-ridden deaths. Occasionally, one died naturally in their bed. Henry Lovett here was murdered by the pirates. His ship was taken over by two of the passengers and the Chinese portion of the crew. The other English passengers jumped overboard and were never seen again. And he was found with his guts hanging out and his poor, badly wounded bulldog still sitting by his side. And Henry Lovett was in Hong Kong when? He was, he died in 1853. I was ship's captain of the Aratun Apka, one of the Armenian ships. And uh, so there's, uh, you know, walking through Hong Kong Cemetery here, um, there's there's blood, there's guts, there's yes. murder. There's Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that what attracted you into this project? It's one of the things, the good stories, the amazing stories that nobody knew that attracted me into this project as I began to discover all these people who nobody knew about. There was originally 10,000 graves here. There's now approximately 8,000. Uh, some of them uh, fell victim to the construction of the Aberdeen Tunnel. But uh, when you first started this project, uh, Patricia, you actually did a, a survey of the graves with fellow historian Ko Tim Kang. Yes, I did, yes. We have um, catalogued all the graves. So now I've given copies of this database to Hong Kong University memory project and the Hong Kong records, public records office. So when you were looking at the graves, do you find coming here quite peaceful or uh, did you find it a little bit creepy sometimes? It's very peaceful. I didn't find it creepy, um, except on the odd occasion like when I got locked in at night because I <laughs> had forgotten the time. <laughs> I then did find it rather creepy and wasn't very good at climbing out. <laughs> so you set up a tent in here. <laughs> Charles Mark Wick, auctioneer of early Hong Kong. He was the son of a butler in the factory at Canton and came to Hong Kong as an auctioneer and became very rich. He was a rough, gruff man who had very little respect for his Chinese servants. They ran, four of them ran away with his money and his pistols and he advertised for their capture, calling them slow, dull, stupid and so on. And in his description, he got his comeuppance when his servant murdered him, strangled him in his bed, aged 63. Yeah, some of, some of these, I mean, when you go around the graves, though, you see, yeah, they're, they're very difficult to read. Yes. So um, was that a problem for you while you were writing this book? Absolutely, absolutely. It would take a long time to make out these sort of um, inscriptions that are so old and faded. Charles Markwick died in 1857. And he was an auctioneer? 
He was an auctioneer, yes. Oh, strangled in his bed, not a nice way to go. And the, um, his servant, who had let in the strangler, then escaped back to his village in China, and they actually took a gunboat to the village and demanded that he be handed over or they would shell the village. And the servant was handed over, brought back to Hong Kong and hung. Goodness me, that's, that's pretty dramatic. So that was an early colonial way of dealing with things. But uh, I mean, as you wandered through, among the 8,000 graves that still exist here, I mean, there must be a whole variety of nationalities. Absolutely. English, American, Japanese, Russian. Uh, there are about 400 Japanese. There are over 150 Russian, uh, Chinese, Eurasians, Germans. All the European nationalities who were Protestant. Do we know the background to when the cemetery was first set up? It was first set up in 1845 because it was so far from the centre of town. The old cemetery in Wan Chai, where Stars Moon Street and Moon Street are now, was full, and they were worried that the, those people buried there might be split, spreading diseases and wanted to move the cemetery away from the centre of town and so they moved it out here. Yeah, it's amazing actually that you have 8,000 graves here at the Hong Kong Cemetery in the middle of some very rich real estate but it still survives here. I am always worried that somebody might decide that the graves are no longer necessary and want to redevelop the area as they've done in Singapore the more publicity the cemetery gets as a place of historical importance, the better. So as you wandered through, if you're cataloguing 8,000 to 10,000 graves, how do you systematically go about that? Did you just sort of wander along from section to section? or? Yes, we did section to section. Um, and it did take a rather long time. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, once you had the names and nationalities, obviously some of the graves would say how these people died, whether they were murdered, whether they fell off a ship's mast or whatever it was. But uh, then your social history of, of the people who uh, died and are buried here um, actually provides a whole um, background to when they were living, the society that they I would have lived like in. It. I would like to think so, but I do feel that historians might take up where I've left off and do more work on the social history of Hong Kong, which has hardly ever been covered. This grave belongs to an American, Endicott, Captain Endicott. He was a captain, he came out as a young man worked for Russell Company as captain on one of their floating opium ships, bought himself a tanker girl from the pirates, had five children by her. It, she took opium I, on of, of her own accord, 
round in her own ships. He then decided to become um, proper. He went to Macau, started a shipping line, and got himself a mail order bride from England. And what happened to his five children? He um, bequeathed them some property and signed her off. <laughs> but I mean, she... Whether she, he saw her again and what became of his five children, nobody knows. Because that was also what I was fascinated by, by your book, was just how much information you were able to find. Because certainly, I would have thought still at that period, um, you know, obviously if somebody was part of the army, navy, a, a senior comprador here, something like that, then there would be records. But I would imagine that often wives and children disappear from the history books pretty fast. Oh, very fast indeed. I was rather reliant on newspapers of the day for the stories. So you used newspapers and then with, with sort of records? Records, or? newspapers, diaries, accounts in various people's books and so on. Everything I could lay my hands on. So you're quite a detective? <laughs> well, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> so that must be uh, fascinating because certainly with diaries you'd have really had an impression much more of um, how people live. One of the many anecdotes I enjoyed in your book was um, just how people were proper, people, you know, the whole issue of dress, even under the most adverse circumstances. Yes, Matilda Sharp, when on an expedition to Vietnam with her husband, who was a banker, got waylaid, the ship was waylaid by pirates. The ship was wrecked, the pirates were waiting to pounce on it. They got into the life raft, the lifeboat, and the first thing she thought of was putting on her crinoline. She got her armor to help her. As she said, she had been like a closed umbrella all night and couldn't and felt terrible continuing to look so awful. <laughs> so, so even when, you're, uh, when your boat has been shipwrecked and you're being attacked by pirates, let, not, uh, let us not allow our standards to be affected. Um, but uh, yes, and, and it describes you know, her hooped skirt. Um, but uh, in general, uh, when you were... Obviously, another thing is that, I mean, I, I don't know, Hong Kong people last a long time these days. I mean, the longevity here is pretty good, so is Japan. But I would imagine that many people that you come across here, particularly, you know, a hundred years ago and up, uh, would have died quite young. The police and the soldiers, the average age, even in the 19th century, even um, later, um, the average age of death was 30. Wow, I wasn't expecting it to be that young. Yes, yes. We'll go up the hillside now to look at the graves of the revolutionaries. <laughs> this, um, you will see, it's totally without name. The British didn't dare allow his name to be put up since um, he was a revolutionary and it would have very much upset the empress that someone murdered by her men should be 
buried with a large monument in the rather prestigious cemetery. So somebody who was murdered by the Empress's men. So what's the background to that one then? Yung Ku Wan was, came to Hong Kong in 1861, was a trainee mechanic with the Royal Navy and studied English. And he founded the Jing Zhong Hui Revived China Society. He was very much implicated in a plot to capture Guangdong and set up a revolutionary base. The unmasking of the plot led to the loss of 48 of the revolutionaries' lives. He managed to escape back here. He was he then gave up the heading of the society to Sun Yat-sen, but the empress thought he was still at the head of the revived China society and sent her men to assassinate him, and he died at his door in a hail of bullets in 1901. This poor, this poor policeman here was mauled to death by a tiger in the New Territories while on duty. He was the third man killed by the same tiger. And he was only 21 years old? Yes. Ernest Goocher. Ernest Goocher. Do we know what happened to the tiger? The tiger was killed. They shot it dead. My thanks to Patricia Lim on an interview from a few years ago on her book... Forgotten Souls, a social history of the Hong Kong Cemetery. Thanks for listening and join me next week.